Hey, I got a question. Um, how many of us like to be in control? Oh, we got some honest people here this morning. Because I know I do. Um, I'm the one, when we go on road trips, I have to drive, right? I like to be the one who determines when we get there, determines how fast we go. You know, I obey the law sometimes. Uh, I like to be the one to decide when it's time to leave. Like, I, I, I enjoy, I kind of like being in control. And as I was thinking about that, I kind of was thinking to myself, man, how deep does this desire for control go? Like, how, really, how deep does it actually go? So I gave myself a little test. And maybe this morning you could join me in this test, since we're being honest. Um, I asked myself, what kind of person am I when I'm not in control? And um, on a light note, I, I, think, I thought back to the times when my son, Axel, was born. And as, a, as an infant, when he was really little, and those parents in the room know this feeling, uh, when he gets a, got a cold, I felt so out of control. Like, I can't give him medicine, right, Chris? I don't know what to do. I can't get the, the snot out, and I'm not doing all that other stuff. Like, you, no, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and it was so frustrating. I was so mean to my wife. Like, I had to realize what, what it was doing to me, the fact that I was not able to be in control. Um, and then, like, uh, as I was thinking about this, I realized, yo, research says there is something to humans desiring a sense of control. Studies do show that there's this real reality that we all uh, have a deep sense or a need for a sense of control. And so I'm like, yo, I'm going to solve this problem. I put on my engineering mind. I'm going to solve this problem. You know, I found the issue, guys. I found what the problem was. Netflix. <laughs> Netflix. Streaming services. Seriously, they... You, you can binge watch anything. Yo, you can get content after content after content. I'm serious. One time I sat down, I watched all six seasons of 30 for 30. And check it, I didn't even have to press play to, for the next episode. Down in the right corner, so, somebody talk to me. Down in the right corner, it says the next episode will start in 10, 9, 8. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I didn't even have to move. But, yo, do you remember TGIF? What? What? Do you remember good, wholesome network television? Right? You remember, like, you had to actually sit and wait. I used to bolt. Everything stopped at 8 o'clock from, uh, those who don't know, TGIF, okay, right? Thank God it's Friday in the, in the comedy business. Thank God it's funny. It was ABC's time slot from 8 to 10.30. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And they would put these family-oriented comedies all in a row, and you would just sit there and enjoy them step by step. Yes, come on, come on. It's a rare condition <laughs> to beat any good news on the newspaper page. Y'all know the tonation and everything. And then streaming services, Netflix. And it gave us this false sense of control. Gave us this idea that we could control things. Because remember, I couldn't control, we couldn't control where they place perfect strangers or family matters, or when they removed perfect strangers and put full house. And we could not control that. If you missed an episode, you missed an episode. And, and if it came on as a rerun, I mean, you wouldn't know it. 
you, you couldn't find out. <laughs> but now with Netflix, you can just watch an episode again and again. Leave it up to my sons. They watch the same things all and over and over and over. They give us, <laughs> they give us a false, and here's the, here's the issue. It has given us a false sense of control. And you know, I want to be very real for a second. I think it has seeped into other areas of my life. If I was to be honest and do an assessment of me, it has seeped into other areas of my life. Uh, my oldest son, AJ, uh, he, I can't control what he likes. I grew up as a basketball player. Basketball took me all around the world. I gave my son a basketball. He looked at it like it was a foreign object. AJ likes soccer. He loves soccer. And I can't control that he loves soccer. And I have to realize that. And, and I'll go a step further. In work, many of you know I work for an organization called Young Life. And one of uh, our key methodologies is something called contact work. And contact work simply means you go into the world of kids, into the world of teenagers on their turf, on their rules. You empty yourself. You step into their world just to earn the right to share the gospel of Jesus with them. It's a phenomenal methodology, but here's the reality. The way that I do contact work, I can't make my staff do contact work like that. The way that I go to the school or I may spark up a conversation with a teenager on the train, it's not the same way my staff member would. And I found myself frustrated because I'm trying to tell them to do it like me, but I don't really have that control. And here's the deeper one, and I think this applies to all of us. If I were to be honest, I try to control my own story. You try to control your own story. We do all types of things to make sure our story goes the way that we want it to go. We put ourselves in position to get the things that we think are best for our lives. We actually try to do things to mitigate the pain and the frustration in our lives. But here's the reality. All of us would agree we don't have control of that. Truth is, there's only one who has control. And the Bible is very clear and explicit about who that is. God is the only one who has control. In the beginning of Genesis, it says God created the universe. It didn't give us any descriptors. It said God, he shows up on the scene. He's there. He's God. God created the universe. In the Gospel of John, it says in the beginning, it was God. God is the one who is in complete control. All other control is a false sense of control. And the fancy way in Christian circles that we talk about the fact that God is in ultimate control of all things is a word called sovereignty. Sovereignty means God is in control of everything that happens in the world and whatever actually happens in the world is either God issued or God allowed. Sovereignty means God is in control of everything that happens in the world. And whatever actually happens in the world is either God issued or God allowed. And see, what I love about our series, and we're going to close up our series, our Genesis Stories series, is we're going to look at the second half of Joseph's life. And what I want to do is take... Uh, a slow, methodical time through 
These 13 chapters, chapters 37 through 50, I'm not going to read them, so don't worry about that. But I want us to actually look and, and extract how we can learn about God's sovereignty from Joseph's story. A couple things before we jump in the story. One, here's the reality. God's sovereignty is a complex issue. It's hard. It's difficult. I'm going to say it again. I want everyone to hear me. The concept, the idea of God being all-controlling, the ruler of everything, nothing escaping his knowledge, that reality and that attribute of God is a concept that is very difficult and it's hard. And I don't want us to be distracted this morning by the reality that it's hard. I want us to just embrace it. It's difficult. It takes time. There's a lot of things God is still teaching many people about that. And there will be more and more that we learn as we continue to just walk with God. But it's a very hard concept, and I don't want you to get distracted this morning. Here's the second point before we jump into Joseph's story. Um, Joseph's story is about Joseph, but it's not really about Joseph. See, Moses spends these 13 chapters giving us a big chunk of Joseph's story, and we don't see a whole lot of, uh, of feedback from Joseph. We don't see a lot of his response to the things that are happening in his life, and I think that's because Moses wants to point us to the one who's in control. Moses wants us to see the reality that God is in control of all these steps, and so the narrative is shaped that way. We don't see a whole lot of Joseph's interaction there. And so, like a good movie, as we jump into Joseph's story, I love movies that start at the end and then they work backwards. They tell us how they got there. And so we're going to start at the end, towards the end of Joseph's story. There's uh, something that Joseph says that highlights God's sovereignty. It's found in Genesis 45, uh, starting at verse 4. It says this, then Joseph said to his brothers, please, come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So if you will, I want to go into very slowly very methodically, I want to go into the episodes, if you will, of Joseph's life. The first episode, it, I'm calling it slavery. So Joseph tells his, in the beginning, Joseph tells his family uh, that he has a dream. He tells his, his, mom, his, 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 his brothers that they're going to bow down to him. He tells his family that they're going to bow down to him. Um, and uh, his brothers hate him because... Uh, Jacob, Joseph's father, actually says that Joseph is my favorite. Parents don't do that, okay? The brothers are out pasteurizing the flock, 
And Jacob tells Joseph to go join them. So the brothers are out doing what they do. They see Joseph coming, and they plan to kill him. Then they decide, uh, so Reuben is like negotiating with his brothers. He's like, hey, listen, let's not kill him. We shouldn't do that. Let's just throw him into a pit, and let's leave him there. So they decide to throw him in a pit and leave him there. Then they go to sit and have lunch. Man, we're going to come back to that. They go and sit and have lunch, and when they're having lunch, they see these Ishmaelites come by, um, and they decide to sell Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. They grab him out of the pit, hand him over. Joseph now is in slavery. Episode 2, Potiphar's house. So Joseph gets to Potiphar's house. So uh, as the, these Ishmaelites were coming, uh, Potiphar, who was the captain of the guards, he's the one kind of leading this. They take Joseph as a captive back to Potiphar's house, and now that's where Joseph is a slave. But I love uh, verse chapter 39, Genesis 39, verse 2. It says this, uh, the Lord was with Joseph. And Potiphar leaves everything under Joseph's control and only concerns himself with what he eats. Joseph now, as a slave, he made it. He's moving on up. He's in Potiphar's house, and life is good. I mean, he's a slave, but life is good, respectively speaking. Then the Bible tells us that Joseph was a handsome dude. <laughs> Potiphar's wife now is trying to sleep with him. She is, the Bible says, it's so, it's so crazy, the Bible says that she talks to him often. She continues to go to him. He says no the first time, she comes back. He says no the second time, she comes back. And finally, she's like, yo, Joseph, you gonna sleep with me? She grabs him. She's holding his coat. He's like, I am out of here. He leaves that joint. He runs. She takes the coat. She brings it to her husband, Potiphar. She says, yo, this Hebrew that you had in here kind of doing his thing and, and, and running your affairs, he tried to sleep with me. Potiphar's like, no, he didn't. I, it didn't go like that, guys, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to get through this narrative, right? But Potiphar sees it, and he is furious. But I love something that Joseph says. I did write this down. Joseph says, something. Uh, he says this. He's after some time, his master's wife looked longly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. But he refused. Look, listen to what Joseph said. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house. And he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? Joseph is being an upright dude, but now he has been falsely accused, and since Potiphar was so angry, he throws Joseph in prison. Episode 3, prison. Joseph is in prison. He went from having everything under his control, being in complete control in Potiphar's house, to now being a, just another dude in prison. The Bible tells us this in Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. 
the warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and the Lord made everything that he did successful. Here we see in episode three, the Lord was with Joseph. We saw it in episode two, the Lord was with Joseph. While in prison, Joseph interprets two dreams, one for a cupbearer, one for the baker. And I love how the Bible tells this story. Uh, the cupbearer goes first. He says, yo, I have a dream. Joseph interprets it. It sounds positive. The baker's like, oh, bet. I'm going to ask him my dream because my dream should end up that way too. Right? Wrong. <laughs> the baker goes and gets his dream interpreted. And at the end of his dream, he's going to be hanged. Unfortunate. Not Joseph's fault. He's just interpreting. Joseph spends two years in prison. Two years. After he interpreted the dream of the cupbearer, he kind of plants this seed. He says, hey, yo, don't forget about me. But they forgot about him. And Joseph spends two years in prison. And then episode four comes. It's the promotion after two years, Pharaoh now has a dream. And here we go. The cupbearer now remembers. He says, oh, I have recognized my faults. Pharaoh, I know there's been nobody that could interpret your dream, but when I was locked up, I knew this God named Joseph, and he interpreted the dreams. So Pharaoh said, you know what? Go get Joseph. They send for Joseph, get him out of the dungeon, clean him up, shave him, and he now goes before Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And I love this line uh, when Joseph approaches Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, yo, Joseph, you're going to interpret my dream. And Joseph says, it's only God. The interpretation of your dream is going to come from God. And so, Joseph, uh, so Pharaoh tells Joseph uh, the dream. Um, and then uh, it, what, the, what the dream actually tells us is that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of severe famine. There's going to be hard times in the land. And then Joseph tells Pharaoh in, in, in verse 33, he says this. He says, now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. This is clever. It's clever, my G. I like this. Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. As a result, Pharaoh, as a result of interpreting Pharaoh's dream, Joseph rises to power. Now he's in power in Egypt. He's not in Potiphar's house. He's not in Potiphar's house anymore. Now he's in Egypt. He's in Pharaoh's house. He's in relationship with the king. The, the stakes are higher. It's different here. Listen to what Pharaoh says when he gives Joseph, Joseph his promotion in verse 39. He says, then Pharaoh, the Bible says, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word, only in regard to the throne. This is a big statement for a king to make in this time. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, 
I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. That gold chain, baby. Fine linen. Joseph has been upgraded. He is now in control. Last episode, the reunion. Now Joseph is in power. Pharaoh gave him a wife, gave him power, absolute power, anything but the throne. The seven years of plenty come, and Joseph does exactly what he says he's going to do. And then the famine comes, and it's, it's getting ugly now in Egypt. And so Joseph's family now needs food. So they actually come to Egypt. The brothers come to Egypt to get grain. And, and Joseph sees them and recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. I would imagine he's been upgraded, kind of like when I, you know, went from being single to marrying my wife. You know what I mean? I started looking better, started wearing nice stuff. And, right, she told me today, you know, you could have worn a different pair of sneakers. I was like, I hear you. I'm rushing, though. You know? Joseph was upgraded. I would imagine they, they couldn't recognize him. He spoke another language. He had to speak to, the, to them through interpretation. So this reunion is happening. His brothers come back. They need food. And Joseph is, is kind of wrestling with some things here. He's, he gives them some tests, tells them to go bring Benjamin back. And he does a, a bunch of things there. And then Joseph sent them. Uh, and then uh, Joseph invites his brothers back to the house to have a meal. And it's at this meal where he says our scripture for the morning, Genesis 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. Because remember, they didn't recognize him. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life, not just your life, but life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and, ruled, and, ruler, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So now there, there's a reunion. Jacob actually comes to Egypt. Pharaoh says, yo, y'all could go live in Goshen. Jacob had a really large family. Y'all can chill and hang out in Goshen. Uh, and then Jacob dies. Joseph's father, Jacob, dies. And then the brothers are like, hold up. Pops died. So if Joseph is angry, this is his opportunity to get at us. And so in chapter 50... Verse 19 and verses 19 and 20, this is what Joseph says to them. Don't be afraid, for, I am, in, for am I in the place of God? Acknowledging God's sovereignty. Verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, as we look at Joseph's life, this is crazy. 
Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, goes to Potiphar's house, has everything in his control. He's living good. Then he gets falsely accused of sleeping with someone he didn't sleep with. He gets thrown into prison. He interprets a few dreams. They forgot about him. Then he comes back, interprets another dream. Then after two years, he's He's remembered. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. He gets appointed all over Egypt. He reunites with his brother. And at the end of it all, Joseph says, God was the one that was in control. Now, let's keep it real for just a little bit. Y'all know me. I have to do this or else I would not be genuine to who I am. Any part of this story happens to me, I'm tight. Any part. I'm, I'm upset. There's no part of this story that I'm like, oh, that's, nah. I can't, I, none of it. There's none, nothing about his story that makes me excited. And remember, sovereignty is hard. And I know some of us may be asking the question, well, Aswan, why did Joseph have to go through all of this to get here? And I want to remind us, let's not get distracted by the bigness of God's sovereignty, But here's the truth. I want to acknowledge it is difficult to embrace God's sovereignty. And here's one of the reasons why. Because God's ways are not our ways. The reality is, is God's ways are not our ways. We are finite. God is infinite. And there is no way for us to fully comprehend all he does and why he does it. Isaiah says this in verse In chapter 55, verses 8 through 9, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Verse 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, the tough part about Joseph's story is you and I would have written it differently. There is no way I'm accepting that you sold me for 20 pieces of silver. I'm not accepting that. It got to be like, all the gold in the world. You're not just going to sell me for 20 pieces of silver, right? When I, if I was writing a story, can we be honest for a second? If I was writing a story when his brothers didn't, they, my brothers didn't recognize me, I'm sending them molded bread. I'm sending them everything home. Y'all getting in trouble. When Jacob finds out that Joseph is still alive, I'm saying, yo, pop, do you know what they did to me? They threw me in a pit. I'm telling There's no way I'm just going to let this go. I was in slavery. I got falsely accused because of y'all. You crazy. Right, exactly. (laughs) And even on a deeper level, if we were to be honest, it's hard to embrace God's sovereignty because we would write stories differently. Just to be real for a second, I would would write some things differently. The the history of, of of black America in this country. I would write that differently. The reality that there was a young boy, 15 years old, shot in the head here in Harlem. Godfrey knows him, was at his program. I would write it differently. It's hard to embrace God's sovereignty because his ways are not our ways. The over-sexualizing of women in our culture, I, I would write it different. You would write it different, yes? We would write stories different. It's hard to embrace the sovereignty of God. But here's what I love about the text, the scriptures. Isaiah tells us his ways are not our ways, but it tells us his ways are higher than ours. 
God sees at an altitude that we can't see. God sees through a prism that we just don't have. God has the ability to do things that we don't. And although it's hard and difficult to embrace, and I know it is, and we have to continue to, to, to wrestle with that reality, the truth is we have to accept the fact that, yes, we would write things different, but God is the one ultimately in control. Here's the second reason why I find it hard to embrace sovereignty is because we walk by sight primarily. Yes? I, I want to be honest. Like, there are things in my life that are happening right now. There are things right in front of me that are pressing in. There are situations. I'm going to be very honest. My, my youngest daughter is going to college. We got, I got to figure out. We're, we're trying to move. Where's that money going to come from? The Lord, hopefully. But I got to trust in God's sovereignty. There are situations that are crashing in on me here and now right in front of me. The reality is what I see is what I see. And it's hard to think about God's in control of all things when right in front of me, the, the, the things right in front of me are so consuming. Yes. And I know we feel that. I know that happens to us. Some of us right now are in real difficult situations. Maybe you're in a difficult relationship. Maybe you're deciding what career path to take or where to move. Maybe you have a loved one that unfortunately has an illness that you can't control, and you're deciding should you move closer to them or not. Some of us have things that are looking us right in the face. But remember, the truth is, you could be in chapter 37. You got to get to chapter 50. Remember, God is in control. When, J J when Joseph was in slavery, he didn't know he would be in Potiphar's house. I mean, in Pharaoh's house, in control of all of Egypt with a signet ring and a gold chain. You don't know what God is doing in your life right now. And although you can't understand it, man, I would be a bad pastor if I didn't ask you to just continue to hold on. To remember that you're at one part of your story and there's so much more that God is writing. And he's a good God and he's a faithful God. And we get to see in Joseph's story, although we may not have written it like that, lives were changed because of Joseph's position. People were saved because of Joseph's position. Someone will be changed because of your position. Maybe someone in your family, family, you're only at chapter 37. There is a chapter 50. Yet and still, it's difficult to embrace God's sovereignty. Now, although that's hard, I want to wrap up with some implications because as we continue to, to wrestle through God's sovereignty, and I hope I was sensitive enough to everyone's situation. And we can't unpack it all, but I want to show the implications of sovereignty in our everyday life. Here was the fear for me when I listened to this message, when I was thinking about this message. Man, I feared that I would leave sovereignty on the surface level of my Christian walk. And I, and I wanted to go a little deeper, so I thought about some implications for us. And to get to these implications, I want to walk through a passage of Scripture 
See, because the sovereign God decided to put on skin and step into our neighborhood. So the way for us to actually really interact with God's sovereignty is to look at the life of Jesus because he's the invisible image of an invisible God. And so if we want to know how God uh, uses and, and responds and, 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 and plays out his sovereignty, we look at the life of Jesus. I want to turn to Matthew chapter 14. And I want to look at this. It starts this way. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. The he here is Jesus. Jesus has already fed the 5,000. There's uh, men and women in that circle. And now he's, he's finished that and he dismisses disciples. He tells them to go across the sea because he's now going to dismiss the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. We see Jesus doing this practice often. For those of us who follow Jesus, this is a practice we should follow ourselves. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to, command me to come to you on the water. I want to pause there. Jesus tells Peter, He commands him to come to him on the water. The first implication of of God being sovereign, I think it calls for our submission and our obedience. It calls for our submission and our obedience. Jesus knew exactly where Peter was. Jesus knew exactly the surrounding. He knew everything that was happening, and yet he called Peter, and Peter needed to obey. I love this reality that God is sovereign. The scriptures tell us how sovereign God is. In Revelations 21, 6, it says, Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. In Isaiah 46, it says, Remember what happened long ago, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. And family, this God has now incarnated himself, and now he is walking on water telling Peter to come. He's asking for Peter's obedience, and he's doing the same for you and I. Because God is sovereign and he knows all, he's saying to you and I, son, daughter, be obedient. Submit to me. And I love that, that, that God knows that it's difficult to embrace his sovereignty. So uh, his sovereign nature is also governed by the other characteristics. He's a God that's merciful. He's a God that's loving. He keeps his promises. He's trustworthy. So it's this God that's asking you to obey and submit to the process. It's not some tyrant God that doesn't know about you or care about you. It's the one who loves you who's saying, come, be obedient to me. I love 
how Jesus shows us this uh, in, in John chapter 21. Uh, Peter, who denies Jesus, we've heard this before, right? Peter denies Jesus. He tells, uh, he, in, the, the Bible tells us in a, in a setting, he says, uh, the, Peter curses. He's like, I don't even know who Jesus is. Jesus being all-knowing in John 21 sits down, has breakfast with Peter, and he says, Peter, I love you. And he reinstates him. He brings him back into relationship. And God does the same for you and I. He's the one that's asking us to submit and to obey. If we continue the story in Matthew, but when he saw the strength of the wind, this is Peter, but when Peter saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Some of us are in situations right now where we're screaming out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I love this reality. The second part, the implication to our life is this. God's sovereignty brings us comfort. And here's how. Jesus sees that the reality of Peter's situation, he's now focused only on reality, and he starts to sink. And what does the Bible say? Immediately. Say immediately. He doesn't wait. God, Jesus steps into that situation where he's sinking and he reaches out his hand and they actually walk back to the boat together. Jesus knows, God knows what situation you're in and immediately he steps in and our job is to look for ways to be comforted by his care for us. And I'm not saying that's easy. I know it's difficult, but God's sovereignty brings comfort. Here's another aspect to that. I feel comfort when I don't have to be in control of all things. When there's things that I know I can't control and I can give it away, man, there's a level of comfort. And I think God is asking that of us. Because we are finite, we are incapable of embracing it all, God is saying there is comfort. Romans 8.28 says this, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Everything in Joseph's life, God was working together for good. Everything in your life, God is working together for your good. Why? Because he's sovereign. And here's the last one. I'll close with this. Verse 32, Matthew 14, verse 32. It says, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. The last implication of God's sovereignty in our life is that God's sovereignty compels us to worship. When I look back, when you look back on all the things that God has done in your life, you can't help but thank him. Some of you are here today because of how God has navigated through your life. Yes? I'm here today because there's things that happened in my life or didn't happen in my life because God was sovereign. He was in full control and he was shaping and navigating my life. And it compels me to stop and worship him. I think about the reality that I couldn't control losing my dad three years ago, four years ago now. May 14th, it was a Thursday. I couldn't control that reality. But in God's sovereignty, and I know this is difficult, 
but it was difficult for me. But in God's sovereignty, I read the scriptures, and the scriptures tell me I am not to mourn like someone who doesn't have hope. I'm supposed to mourn like someone who does have hope, who knows that I will see him again one day because I'm going to worship the one who loves me and cares for me and knows that was going to be a difficult segment of my life. It was a tough episode and nobody knows the trauma and the hurt and the pain that I suffered and I went through. There's a lot that I went through on my own and the reality is out of that I can worship God because he's the one who's sovereign and knows all. It compels me to worship, even though I don't know and I can't see it. The Bible tells me to walk by faith as a disciple of Jesus, not focusing on what I see, but trusting for God in the things that I can't see. I want to close with this. We worship because Jesus died and he rose for us. He's the one that God in his sovereignty knew that you and I had nothing to pay for the debt that we created because of sin. God in his sovereignty knew that you and I would not have enough faith dollars. We would not have enough goodness to give back to reconcile us to God. So in his sovereignty, he sends Jesus. He lives. He dies. He rises. He conquers death once and for all, and he calls us to worship him. And why does he do it? Because he loves us. John 3 says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let me pray. God, thank you that you allow us to wrestle with your sovereignty. Thank you that you call us to submit, to be comforted, and to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.